Take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 22. Verses 63 through, we're hoping to get through chapter 23, verse 25, an ambitious portion of Scripture for us this evening. Um, and it's going to be that way next week, too. I was actually uh, writing my sermon this last week for next week, and uh, I extended the number of verses instead of shortening them, which is something that doesn't happen very often, so I was really excited about that. Um, so we are in Luke 22, verses 63 uh, through chapter 23, verse 25, the Lord willing, this evening. Last week we considered, if you recall, the failure of Peter. The principles of failures, they relate to our own lives. We know that Peter will be restored. We went last week and we studied about his particular restoration together uh, from John and how Jesus restored him back to fellowship. And we were reminded in the day of failure that God, has, God does not reject us. God does not kick us to the curb. At this moment, however... Peter is in great despair. Recall last week we ended with Peter going out and weeping bitterly. The other disciples are scattered, save for John. Jesus is standing before the high priest being questioned. We now cut to what is happening between Jesus and Annas. Recall last week we talked about both Annas and Caiaphas as sort of a dual high priestly role. We considered that together and... We're going to focus in on these interactions this evening. What is happening with Jesus while Peter is overwarming himself by that fire barrel? We do not have the record of what was said explicitly between Jesus and Annas in Luke 22. For that, we go to John. We talked a little bit about this last week. I'd like to go there again. You can uh, turn there if you'd like. We won't be there for too long, or you can just read on the screen in John 18, beginning in verse 19, the Bible says this, The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken... One of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus is questioned in regard to his teachings. And as he does so, he states plainly that everyone knows his teachings. There is no secret as to what he's been teaching. He's taught it openly. He's taught it with people listening. The scribes have been there. The Pharisees have been there. The lawyers have been there. The Herodians have been there. He said the same thing. He said nothing in secret that he did not say openly. He had nothing to hide, and so he hid nothing. And he states as much to Annas. An officer in the house interpreted these words as great disrespect toward the high priest. And so he struck Jesus with an open hand rebuking him for his words, to which, as we see here, Jesus replies that if he had said something evil, he'd like to know what it was. If not, then why hit him? 
It is at this point that Jesus, the Bible says, is sent to Caiaphas and interviewed by Caiaphas. And this is where we merge with Luke 22. We pick up there in verse 63. We read through 65 in Luke 22. The Bible says this, And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. So at this point, Jesus is not under the authority of Rome. He is just under the authority of of the high priest in the Sanhedrin. He's under the authority of Annas, Caiaphas, and the Jewish tribunal, the Jewish leaders. It is here among his own people that he was mocked and first smitten. It was his own brethren who blindfolded him and struck him on the face, asking then, prophesy who it is that smote thee, mocking the fact that he is called a prophet among his brethren and speaking with all manner of other blasphemies the scriptures tell us against him. Through this, the religious leaders are making the opinion of our Lord known. They don't care about him. They are not interested in his words, in his sayings. They are not interested in his defense. They are now exhibiting what can only be described as the truest expression of their hearts toward him, the disdain which they have for Christ. And the scriptures then continue in verses uh, 66 through 69, and we read these words. And also, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led them him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. We've now rolled over into the daytime, which means we're probably somewhere after, we are somewhere after six in the morning when the day would start. The Sanhedrin do not meet at night. So they had to wait until morning. When the morning came, they gathered together as early as they could to conduct their business. Do take note here that, they, that Jesus is before the Sanhedrin council. This is going to come up again later. We'll find that the Sanhedrin are those who will challenge him. That does not mean that they were unanimous in their decision. We'll find next week that there is a certain man who was on the Sanhedrin council, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who did not consent to what happened to Jesus and ended up asking for his body to give him a proper burial and placed Jesus' body in his own tomb. That man was one of the Sanhedrin council. And we'll find, as we can, if, if we were to read, continue through the book of Acts, that he is not the only of the 70 on the Sanhedrin who was not consenting to the treatment of Jesus nor to the other uh, disciples and to Christianity as a whole. So the council asks Jesus plainly, art thou the Christ? Christ is the Greek word for anointed. The word for anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. So that's what they're asking him. Are you the Messiah? Now the word Messiah itself is only found two times in our Old Testament, both in Daniel chapter 9. However, the Hebrew word translated there, Messiah, is used 38 times in the Old Testament. All other times it's used, it's uh, translated simply with the form of the word anointed. They are asking him, however, if he is the anointed of God, if he is the one that was promised, if he is the Messiah. And Jesus responds first by highlighting the extreme injustice, the sham nature of this whole proceeding. His response is right in line with what we've witnessed of Jesus' ministry to this point. 
There came a point, if you recall, in the book of Luke where Jesus stopped contending with those who had rejected him. He turned his heart and his mind toward his own disciples. And if you, we can say it this way, as Jesus uh, would t- had taught himself on the Sermon on the Mount, he stopped casting his pearls before swine. When Jesus turned his focus inward, rather than wasting his time on those who simply would not believe no matter what he did. This response of Jesus this evening is in that same spirit. Why should Jesus affirm or deny anything when no matter what he said, they're not going to believe him? Effectively, he's saying, look, if you were genuinely asking if I was Messiah, I would genuinely give you an answer and show you evidences of such. But you're not genuinely asking if I'm Messiah. You are genuinely seeking to to entrap me so that you can kill me. That's all you're doing here. He knows this. We know this. Because Jesus has put them all to shame in the last week, hasn't he? I know Jesus' final week has been several months of our preaching, and so that, that final seven days might begin to seem a little bit distant in our hearts and in our minds. But recall the, the messages that, that we had on Jesus talking to the Herodians, talking to the Sadducees, talking to the Pharisees. In each case, that was in these, these last seven days, the last seven days of Jesus' ministry here. Jesus had, had answered their questions. He had brought them all to a place of silence because they were trying to trap him and they could not do it. He'd answered some questions. At other times, he told them he wouldn't answer a question unless they a- answer one first and they would not answer their, the questions. So Jesus knows that they would no more respond to doctrine or sound reasoning today than they would have any other time in the past week. They aren't asking honest questions. They don't care what he says They will not answer his questions and they certainly won't let him go if he were to answer theirs. So Jesus says effectively, since you're not going to let me go, you're not going to answer my questions. Let's just move on from this. And the next time you see me, you'll see me sitting on the right hand of the power of God. We'll just just leave it at that. This statement, of course, was a statement of divinity that Jesus had made himself equal with the Father. The council hears this, and that's exactly what they were looking for. They pounce on his statement where Jesus stated that he was the Son of Man, and they ask him, verses 70 and 71, then said they all, art thou then the Son of God? Remember, he just said, you'll see the Son of Man sitting in glory. Okay, you said you're the Son of Man. Are you also the Son of God? And he said unto them, ye say that I am. And they said, what need we any further witness for we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. So they asked Jesus, are you the son of God? As he just stated, he's the son of man. In our language and culture, Jesus's response sounds somewhat ambiguous, doesn't it? It sounds somewhat uh, like he's dodging the question. Ye say that I am. We do not actually even see this phraseology in Greek culture as we dig uh, uh, through Greek history. However, in Hebrew culture, In rabbinic teaching, of course, Jesus was speaking here to the Sanhedrin, right? He was speaking to a group of Jewish people. This phrase is a very clear answer. By saying, ye say that I am, Jesus is in no uncertain terms saying, yes, I am the Son of God. That's what he's saying here. Jesus accepts their question as his own affirmation. He's saying, absolutely, I am what you say I am. I am the Son of God. And this, of course, to the council is blasphemy of the highest order. And they're thrilled by this blasphemy. They don't 
they're not going to sound thrilled at that moment, but they're, they're thrilled because now they get what they want, which is Jesus now can be charged with blasphemy. He can be sent to Rome to die. We read more of their response in Matthew 26, verses 65 and 66, where the Bible says this, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye, speaking to the council? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. So the council says he's guilty of death. Caiaphas is the one who was the one rending his clothes and mourning over this. He gets the response he was hoping for. They have the response they were hoping for. But they don't have the right to kill him. That's the problem. Because they were not an autonomous nation, Rome was over them. Rome gave the Sanhedrin a good amount of flexibility in in order to live out the expectations of their laws without Roman interference. However, they drew the line most certainly at the death penalty. You could not kill, the, the, the Sanhedrin could not sentence a man to death without the approval of Rome. Now, then it was time for them in their feigned indignation and fury to go to the procurator of Judea, a man named Pontius Pilate, and get him to sentence Jesus to death. Judea had been officially formed into an imperial province under the direct control of the emperor after Archelaus. If you recall, Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. Archelaus ruled in Herod's place after Herod died in in the first few years of Jesus' birth. Uh, life, excuse me. Jesus, they, they go down to Egypt. They return to Jerusalem when they hear Herod has died, but they don't return to Jerusalem proper. They return to Nazareth because they hear Archelaus was reigning in his father's stead. When Archelaus dies, Archelaus was the final of the kind of the autonomous kings whereby they ruled as kings under Rome. After this, the, um, the region of Judea had been assimilated more so into Rome and Rome appointed what, what's called a procurator over the province and took more direct control. So now they appointed someone who, instead of doing his own thing, was a direct representative of the emperor in the region. And that direct representative for Judea was a man named Pontius Pilate. As procurator of Judea, he possessed civil, military, and criminal jurisdiction over the pro- province. We begin reading now in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him, that would be Jesus, unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now remember, it's early in the morning. The Jews are characteristically a very unruly people. And here they charge Jesus with perverting the nation by telling his followers not to give tribute to Caesar and claiming that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, this is interesting because what they just found him worthy of death for was not, not, for, was not for teaching others that they should not pay tribute, right? It was not even for claiming that he was a king. It was for claiming that he was the Christ. But they had to find some way to make Pilate do something other than go, so, Right? And so what they have to do is they have to drum up some charges that would make Jesus a threat to Rome. Now, the problem is the charges they drum up. The first charge is this statement. He is teaching the nation, uh, his followers, forbidding them from giving tribute to Caesar. Now, remember, 
just a few days ago in our account, not in our preaching, but in our account, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. They already tried to entrap him here and they did not work. This is a blatant falsehood. The second charge is that Jesus claimed to be Christ, a king. Interesting, a king, right? They throw that in there because they know the messianic prophecies are that, G- that Messiah will one day rule and reign. And if he was actually stepping into that Messiah role in the way they would have wanted him to, every single one of them would have a sword at his side. But instead, now it's their chance to twist it for him to be seen as a seditious traitor to Rome. They sought to solidify the evidence that Jesus was attempting to rival Caesar's authority himself. And so now we have the interview. The interaction is very brief in verse 3. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, Thou sayest it. Here we have it again, right? The same Hebraism. Art thou the king of the Jews? Affirming he's the king of the Jews, thou sayest it. And this is all we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in regard to the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. John, however, gives us a little more insight into this. John 18, verses 33 through, 48, through 38, excuse me, we, we read this. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. So Pilate was uh, very quickly understood that Jesus' claims here were not political, but religious. That he was no threat to the political order. He was only a threat to the Jews' religious order. He very quickly perceived that Jesus had no interest in a physical overthrow of physical kingdoms, as Jesus himself had even proclaimed in the past week unto all who would listen. Jesus admits he is a king. Jesus admits that he was born unto the end that he should bear witness of the truth. The discussion immediately got philosophical as Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? Boy, we could spend time on that. And we have before. Not tonight, though. Recognizing, however, without controversy that this Jesus was no threat to Rome, he goes out and he says, I find no fault at all. We continue in Luke 23, verses 4 through 7. The Bible says this. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning uh, from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether this man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was at Jerusalem at that time. So Pilate goes out to the chief priests, as we just mentioned. Uh, they 
would not go into the judgment hall. They were unwilling to go into the judgment hall because it was the, the preparation for the Sabbath and it was during a feast and they had cleansed themselves. So as those who had cleansed themselves, they would not, they refused to go into the judgment hall of a Gentile because that would defile them. The judgment hall most likely had things that were not cleansed from leaven. And to go into a, a place that was not cleansed from leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be a big, big problem to them, right? So they stood outside the judgment hall and waited for Pilate to, to do his interview. He comes out and he says, I find no fault in this man. And this made them feign even greater indignation. That was not good enough for them. They became fierce. They charged him with stirring up the people, something he was not doing, uh, um, but which they were doing, by the way. And they made particular mention of the fact that he had begun his ministry in Galilee and then it had spread to Judea. And this perks Pilate's interest. Aha, he's a Galilean then? He started his ministry in Galilee? Yes, he started his ministry in Galilee. Yes, he's a Galilean. Then this guy is not my problem, right? This guy is not my problem. This guy is Herod's problem. This is a different Herod. Uh, he would have been a relative of Archelaus and such, but a different Herod. It's Herod's problem. Herod, we know, was the Tetrarch in Galilee and Perea. We've seen this Herod before. This Herod is the man who slew John the Baptist. This Herod is the man who did not want to slay John the Baptist, but because he had illegitimately taken the wife, uh, 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 second wife Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife, and Herodias did not like John because John said this was wrong and evil, Herodias said, kill John the Baptist, and, and Herod didn't want to do it until her daughter Salome danced before them, and Herod said, I like that, and he said, you can have whatever you want. She said, Mom, what should I ask for? Mom said, kill John the Baptist. Now he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He kills John the Baptist. Uh, we spoke of all that, Herod's lineage, his lines, his relationships, back in Luke 9. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time, most likely because of the feast. And we read about that interaction in verses 8 through 12. The Bible says this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Remember back in Luke 9, he was not exceeding glad because he thought that John the ba Jesus might actually be the reincarnated John the Baptist. And that concerned him deeply. But now he knows that Jesus is not the reincarnated John the Baptist. And so he's, a little, he's feeling a little better about Jesus. So he's excited. He was exceeding glad for he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracles done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before they were, they were at enmity between themselves. So Herod's very excited when Pilate sends Jesus to him. All the way back in Luke 9, Jesus, uh, Herod was wondering about Jesus, perplexed because of Jesus. Once Herod found out Jesus was not John the Baptist, he says, I'd really like to see some of these miracles. He sees him as maybe kind of a magician of sorts that would perform for him. And uh, he wants to be performed for. So he's excited that Jesus would be here. He's hoping that, that Jesus will, will perform some miracles, will, will do a little song and dance for him, as it were. Now, we've known throughout our study that Herod is a shrewd man. He's a selfish man. He's a disinterested man. So Jesus was questioned by Herod. 
Throughout the time, Jesus says nothing. And I love the scene as it plays out here. Herod's excited because he wants to see Jesus do some sort of magic tricks. And then Jesus is there as Herod is saying, are you this? Are you that? Have you done this? Have you done that? Could you do this for me? Can you prove this? And Jesus is saying nothing. And then in the background, the chief priests and scribes are standing there vehemently accusing him. He said this, he said that. Herod doesn't care about the accusations. Herod's not interested in that. He just wants to see Jesus do some fun, funny stuff here. Just do, do something, you know, card trick, something, right? He just wants to see Jesus do some miracles, there, and, and the chief priests and the scribes are vehemently accusing him, really taking this seriously. Herod's not taking this seriously. He's not interested in this. When Jesus won't play by his rules, when Jesus won't answer anything, Jesus, uh, Herod uh, raised him in a gorgeous robe, that, that purple robe that, that he would wear at his crucifixion or leading up to his crucifixion. And then he's mocked. He said it not. He's mocked. They mock him just as uh, the council had done. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. Now, when Herod gets bored with Jesus and sends him back to Pilate, this is not a, a contentious thing. And we know that because at this point, Pilate and Herod are made friends. You'd think that Pilate says, he's not my problem, send him to Herod. And Herod says, he's not my problem, send him back to Pilate. That would kind of get under their skin. But this is not how it played out. It probably played out more like this. They're both Roman leaders, right? Leaders under Rome. And so probably the conversation went like this. Herod is transferring Jesus back to Pilate. And Herod says, well, Pilate says, did you find anything wrong with him? And Herod goes, nope. You? Pilate goes, nope. Pilate looks at Herod and says, are these people crazy or what? Herod says, man, these people are pain in the neck. I know, right? Hey, Pilate, you know what? You're actually an all right guy. Hey, Herod, you know what? You're an all right guy too. Let's do lunch sometime. Sure, we'll see you. And we'll see you. Have our secretaries meet together for lunch. And, and, and that's probably some, somehow how it went. And at that point, they were kind of bonded in their, their mutual uh, lack of respect for all of these crazy Jewish leaders. That's my sanctified imagination as to how that played out. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Let's not split the church over that one, okay? Uh, continue in verses 13 through 16. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. Herod found no fault either. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate explains very simply, you brought a man to me saying he'd done wrong. I find no fault. Herod found no fault. So I'll just tell the guy to behave, to quit getting on your bad side, and I will release him from custody. But Pilate knew it would be bad politics just to release him because the Jewish leaders were so angry. So he tried to use a custom to his advantage and to Christ's advantage, which we read about in the following verses. Verse 17 says this, For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. Comparing this with all the other Gospels, we find that Pilate sought to use a custom whereby the Roman leader would release one criminal in his charge on the feast day according to the will of the people. Now, you would say, and we've talked about this briefly before, why would, why, why would it be a reward during the feast day 
to release a criminal, right? Uh, if we had feasts around here, it would be as if the, the, the local law enforcement said, hey, on each one of our holidays, we're going to let the people in the city choose a criminal to let go. Uh, no thanks. You can just keep them, you keep them there. They don't need to be let go. That's fine. Thanks. This is not a privilege. However, the problem was that because Israel was a, 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 a state that was subservient to Rome, it would not be uncommon for their people to be falsely arrested. It would not be uncommon for their people to be arrested for things that were more um, Rome versus Israel type stuff. And so the idea that during the feast, they were able to choose someone who they believe were falsely accused by Rome and say he gets to come out would be a tremendous blessing to the people. And it would be a way to pacify the anger of the mob um, when they were upset at Rome for the way Rome was leading this nation who desired greatly autonomy, but who did not have autonomy. So that's the idea here. And Pilate says, look, you've got this custom. This man has done nothing wrong. This is the man I want to release to you uh, in accordance with the custom. And he's appealing there to the people. I mean, the Sanhedrin are the one that have thrown him here. He's appealing to the mob, to the group there. Don't you, don't you want to let him go? But by this point, the Sanhedrin had worked the mob up into a fervor. And we're, it's going, it's, the dynamics of this is, is fascinating. I love the word of God. Read, if, if you read this and then read next week into Luke 23, the rest of Luke 23, and what you'll find is as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the mood of the mob turns from rage to where they're just standing there silently. And then when Jesus gives up the ghost, the Bible says they beat their chests and then they walk away. It goes from anger to shame, to sorrow. And you can actually trace the emotion of the mob as it has been manipulated. And then as it's kind of come to realize what they've done throughout this process, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll highlight that more next week. So Pilate's looking at the mob here and saying, don't you want to let, don't, your, your own people brought him to us. They, they want him charged, but don't you want to let him go is the idea here. And then, of course, we know from the other Gospels as well that the choice was made. Pilate says, you can either release Jesus or you can release Barabbas, of whom we read this in verses 18 and 19. And they cried out all at once, saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for, cer for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. So Barabbas was a man in prison for sedition and murder. Sedition being an attempt to overthrow the authorities. So he was actually in there for the thing that they're falsely charging Jesus for, right? On top of that murder. So the people had a choice between the man they falsely claimed to be seditious or a man who was actually seditious from a man who preached peace to a, ma a man who was a murderer. And we see their choice here. So blind was their rage, their hatred of the truth and of the light at this point that they would rather see an innocent man die than a guilty man. So they cry for Barabbas to be freed. Verse 20. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. Pilate really wants Jesus released. He's done nothing wrong. If we fill in the gaps with the other Gospels, we find that his wife had said, have nothing to do with this man. 
Because of him, I was tormented in a dream last night. Pilate recognizes that there's something deeply wrong here. He recognizes not only that this man is innocent, but that this man has spiritual authority. In the same way, Herod was really uncomfortable with killing John the Baptist, which is why he didn't do it until push came to shove and he was backed into a corner. The same way, Pilate does not want this man to go to death. Pilate does not want to be a part of this man's sham trial and his... his false accusations and his false death here. Verses 21 through 25. But they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate again insists this man had done nothing wrong. He simply wants to chasten him for nothing, by the way, and release him. But the people were worked into a fervor. They demanded crucifixion, an example and a warning to his followers. And I would like us to fill in the gaps with Matthew this evening. I summarized it a little bit, but let's fill in the gaps with the text. Beginning in verse 18, the second half of verse 18, I'm going to jump into context. The Bible says, For he, that's Pilate, knew that for envy they had delivered him, Pilate was a a shrewd man. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him saying, have thou nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, what shall I do then? With Jesus, which is called Christ. They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe, probably the one that Herod had given him earlier. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off him, put on his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. Pilate washed his hands of the affair, saying Jesus was innocent blood. The Jewish people consented to this. They stated that the blood would be on their hands and the hands of their children. To this end, we recognize that it was not Rome explicitly who had Jesus killed, though they were the instrument of his death it, were, it was the people of Israel themselves who not just called for his death, but they also consented that the blood of Christ would be on their hands. 
Jesus was scourged. He was mocked. He was beaten. Crown of thorns cited in Genesis as the visible manifestation of the consequences of man's sin that thorns would resist man in the ground was placed upon Jesus' head. A, a, a tremendous picture of what Jesus was about to do spiritually. After mocking him, they took off the robe, they put back on his own clothes, they led him away to be crucified. That's where we end this week. We will pick up with his crucifixion next week together. A couple of points of application this evening. Point number one, let us remember, the conflict has never been about morals, ethics, or actions. It has always been about truth. They hated me without cause, Jesus said in John 15, 25. This is the essence of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. As we study the examination that led to Jesus' death, it became apparent that he did not die for anything he had said or anything he had done. He did not die because a group of people actually understood his actions to be evil. Jesus died because he brought the truth to a people who loved darkness. The people were a moral people, but they walked in darkness. The people had a code of ethics, but they walked in darkness. They had all the trappings of righteousness, but harbored in their hearts an unmistakable self-righteousness driven by deep hypocrisy. And there is nothing that the moralizing hypocrite dislikes more than a person who is consistent in his manifestation of the truth, who exposes their hypocrisy. Jesus came as a shining light, exposing error by living and teaching truth, exposing self-righteousness by manifesting true righteousness, exposing hypocrisy by living out sincerity. And when the light of Christ, Christ's truth shined into the darkness of moralizing self-righteous religious systems, even though many of the morals and ethics and actions looked the same, the system was exposed for the hypocrisy that it was. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning as well. To those who love darkness in whatever form it takes, to expose it for what it is threatens them. It threatens their comfort. It threatens their standing in their own eyes, in the eyes of others. It threatens the way they believe their own God, made in their image, perceives them. For some, it threatens their economy when their economy is dependent upon a culture of lies. And this is why Jesus died. Jesus did not die because of what he was or what he taught or what he did. He, uh, he died because what he was, what he taught, and what he did exposed the world around them as little more than dressed up darkness. Jesus himself told them, that these things would be. When he called the leaders of his day whited sepulchers, saying that they were as cups that were filthy on the inside but looked great on the outside. They were not actually moral, ethical people. They had dressed themselves up. They had dressed their darkness in a shroud that reflected the results of walking in the light. 
They pretended to make their darkness look pretty and that that was enough for them. But it will never be enough for God to see darkness dressed in the trappings of light. It is never enough for God for us to dress our darkness in light. We can fool one another, but we cannot fool God. And because it will never be good enough for God to dress darkness in the trappings of light, the world hates the true light. Because the light reminds them that no matter how moral they try to be, no matter how they define that, uh, that idea of morality, no matter what their system, it will never be good enough. They cannot in and of themselves ever be good enough to be right with God. But they don't want to give up their darkness. So instead they get rid of the light. So too it is in our world. So too it is in our day. There are those who have the trappings of morality. They look the part. They walk the walk. They talk the talk. They look it. But what they have really done is they have clothed their darkness in a shroud that looks like light. But on the inside, they are still full of dead men's bones. There's nothing on the inside of righteousness that compels anything outside. We've talked before about the difference between a religion and a relationship. A religion is an outside thing. It is, I dress myself up on the outside, I look away, I act away. A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is I change from the inside and that affects outside. Religion is an outside-in sort of a thing. A relationship with Christ is an inside-out sort of a thing. And as we sit here this evening... And we see what happened to Jesus Christ and we uh, discern why it happened. The question that we first must ask ourselves is, are we of the light or are we of the darkness dressed in the trappings of light? For if we are of the darkness dressed in the trappings of light, then we are those of whom Christ says he will say one day, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And we will, and, and, and those that dressed in the trappings of light will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name and in thy name do many wonderful works? And he will say, depart from me. If you have never actually clothed yourselves in the light from the inside out this evening, that is why Jesus died. He died that you might be not a, a child of darkness dressed in the trappings of light. Any religion can give you that. He died that you might have the darkness that is within you made light. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short. We are all of that darkness. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world the day that Jesus died on the cross, the time leading up to it. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. It's a reminder for us to search our hearts this evening. To, to regard through the conviction of the Holy Spirit whether we are of the light 
or whether we are of the darkness dressed in the trappings of light. One, on the day of judgment, will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The other will say, will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Let us ensure that we are on the side of those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. These men, on this day, sought to destroy the light because they did not want to give up their darkness. The love of darkness does not need rationality. The love of darkness does not need consistency. The love of darkness just needs the power necessary to impose their will. The Jewish leaders compelled that power to slay the light bearer. Not because the light bearer's deeds were evil, but because their deeds were evil. This is what John tells us in John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And so this leads us to our second point, which does bring us more so into this day. The conflict in our day is no different. If you are of the light, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have come to the light. The light has exposed your darkness, and instead of hating the light when the light shined into your heart, you recognized your darkness and you sought to receive the light. You cannot conjure the light in yourself. The light can only be brought about by the finished work of Jesus Christ by our full faith and trust in it. You sought the solution to your darkness. You found that solution in Christ. He took away your darkness and he replaced it with his light. This makes you a light bearer. But it also makes you one who is disdained by the darkness. For centuries now, the halls of power in the Western world have been cordial, if not friendly, to the claims of Christianity. To that end, believers in this country in particular, as well as other parts of the West, have not faced the general backlash that darkness has desired to levy against the light. We know that that's changing in our world, that the halls of power in the Western world are increasingly becoming consumed with a love for darkness. And wherever darkness is loved, light becomes an intrinsic threat. When a person or a group or society rejects you for what you believe, you need to be reminded of this, that it isn't about what you are doing. They are not rejecting you for what you are doing. It's about why you are doing it. Darkness won't admit this. Darkness calls you any number of names for the things that you might believe or the things that you might do. Darkness sees you as backwards. Darkness might even uh, see you as evil for the things which you believe, for your willingness to take this book, to open it and say, if God says it, I believe it. That's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to have darkness look at you and to dislike you simply for bearing the light. This can come in all manner of ways. We could spend all night giving illustrations as to ways in our society or perhaps in your individual lives where darkness would look at you and would, would dislike you for your light. But we won't spend our time. I, I hope that the Spirit of God can take something that you've, you've experienced in your own life and perhaps relate this to you. But know this, the only thing that appeases darkness is when light bearers hide their light. 
But if we hide our light, then we're walking contrary to that which Christ has asked us to do, which is to bear our light. We dare not hide our light. We must not hide our light. If we give into darkness, it's a, uh, the, the idea <laughs> that I think of is, is blood in the water. You put a little blood in the water and the sharks begin to swarm because they smell it. They want more. They're, it's an insatiable desire. When we yield our testimony to darkness, it does not satiate darkness. It only emboldens them to ask for more. That means we must instead endure darkness. Darkness is angry at us because of our obedience to God. Our reflection of the light makes them feel ashamed or at least tempts them to feel ashamed. So they seek to shame you instead in order to silence you. This is one of the common tactics of darkness is that they take something for which we stand in the light and they seek to make us ashamed, which then causes us to cease in our testimony of the light. Though we believe it still in our hearts, for we are of the light, we are ashamed to speak it because of the darkness. And if it does not work for them to shame us, They'll seek to silence us. This has been happening in the past decade. We can read about it in Christian businesses that are being closed down. We can read about it in various elements of culture. So what do we do when we are asked to bear that cross? Well, we do what Christ did. We bear the cross. We don't stop shining the light we simply bear the cross that we're asked to bear. We allow the tr testimony of truth to expose the darkness. We allow the light of the integrity of our hearts to shame the darkness. We live in such abundant light-filled lives that everyone who sees the rage of darkness knows what is true and what is false. We expose error through truth in action and conversation and motivation. And lest this sound too dismal, we're going to go to scriptures in a moment, but, but uh, the neat thing as we do this, is that for every one living in the darkness who would seek to shut us down, there are always those who, as we manifest our light, come to the light. And that's why we do it, right? That is, th those are the ones that we're there for. Those are the ones that we're living for. For those that, when they see the light, they, and it exposes their darkness, just like you one day, however many years ago or months ago or whatever it might have been, just like you one day when your darkness was exposed, instead of hating the light, you fled to the light. So too there are in every hall, in every corner, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. There are those who are seeking the light. And as we shine in the darkness, they come to the light. Now, maybe they don't come all the way to the light through you, but maybe you get to be a little bit of the process. Some sow, some water, some reap. But if we can be a part of the light that draws those who are seeking the truth out of their darkness, this is what it's about. This is why we, this is why we do it. This is why Christ left us here. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, having your conversation, conversation means lifestyle. It's your deportment. It's not just what you say, but it's everything that you do and say, and it's the, the, the manner of your lifestyle. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that would be the unbelieving world, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be unto the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. Here it is. That with well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. On this day, were it not for the extreme power of darkness, as Jesus said, the hour, the hour of the power of darkness has come, these foolish men and their ignorant claims would have been silenced. Pilate even attempted to silence them. Herod attempted to silence them. The power of darkness was working in this day. When we live out a proper testimony among those who would call us evildoers, when the rubber meets the road, all it can do is bring shame to those who would seek to call us evil. The will of God is that your light would silence the ignorance of those who would charge you with evil. That in a society that calls good evil and evil good, you could, your, your good could not be evil spoken of for its goodness. If I must be charged with an offense, if someone must hate me, or must reject me, or must look down on me, or must whatever it might be, from the, the spectrum of, of tremendous evil to the spectrum of just a little bit, let that offense be that I love God and His Word. Let that offense be my love for my wife and my children. Let that offense be your submission to your husband. Let that offense be that I loved my enemies and I prayed for them. Let that offense be that I would not bow the knee to the God of this age. If there must be a charge against me, let the only charge against me be that I followed the word of God. Let that be the charges that they levy against me. So Peter would go on to say in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Let us not come to the point where we are going to do evil to resist evil. And so evil now has something they can grab a hold of and say, see, you do it too. Let us maintain our right testimony before the Lord so that when we are called evil, the only evil that they can hang on to is the evil that is in fact the light of, the, of life. Evil in their minds because they call good evil and they call evil good. If I must suffer, let it be that I suffer for Christ's sake because Christ once suffered for me, the just for the unjust. So Christ has now been delivered to be crucified for his well-doing a man in whom Pilate could find no fault, a man in whom Herod could find no fault, indeed, a man in whom was no fault, but was yet hated because man loves darkness rather than light, not because of the evil of the light, but rather because their deeds were evil. Let us be among those who are light bearers. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, saying you are not in the faith this evening, let tonight be the night where you get it dealt with. If you've been one who has been hiding your light because you've been ashamed, because you've not wanted uh, the evil of this world to shame you, may I encourage you to follow in the path of your Savior, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, to bear that light. And let us always maintain the mindset that if there is going to be some charge that can be levied against us, 
Let it only be the charge that we were followers of the Word of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.